Mentor My Mix is made possible by Pyramind Music and Audio Production Institute. Evolve your sound with expert trainers and up-to-date courses designed to fit the needs of emerging artists and producers. Go to Pyramind.com for details about the San Francisco campus and online programs. Black seed, turn me, guide my intentions forth. Oak tree, please be my refuge as before. Welcome back to the Mentor My Mix podcast. Today I have as my guest, Miss Lucia Lilikoy. It's a great pleasure to have somebody here who is as talented as she is, multi-talented, um, instrumentalist, vocalist, engineer, producer, and somebody who's just put out a really beautiful album last year, um, coming out of very out of a very tumultuous time, and uh, something that really struck me in a very beautiful way. So I'm very pleased to have her here and have an opportunity to talk about um, this project, the song that we're listening to right now, Black Seed. It's the second song off her album called Loose, full-length album. Um, welcome, Lucia. Thank you so much. So nice to have you here today. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about this song that I'm playing right now. Um, I picked it really because, um, for me, it was it's a bit of a standout on the record um, in in a way that it's it's a little different from everything else. And I really I really love the melody and the rhythmic components of it. Um, tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind this track. Yeah, so Black Seed um, was a song I wrote on the ukulele. Mm -hmm. And I wrote it um, after I I had written um, the first song in the album, which is Land Where I Belong. And I guess, you know, a lot of my songs come out of dark times or difficult times. Mm. Um, And I think it just... The song speaks to going deep into the dirt and going deep into the unseen realms and uh, finding, just allowing yourself to be there and hopefully finding a new seed that, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. from which you can come out the other side with something new and something fresh and oh i love that new life so that so the blackness of the seed comes from the turmoil and the challenge mm-hmm. and then a kind of a rebirth process coming out of that and i love that line going into the dirt too because uh, there's a favorite uh, peter gabriel song of mine digging in the dirt right yeah, I, lo- I love that song and that that he talks a lot about his own psychological processes in that right so that's uh, I, I like that line a lot um, so, uh, tell us when you, uh, you started the process of recording this album in particular. So, I, I started um, back in, I don't know, it's, it's hard to know, but um, 20, uh, around 2016, um, I started writing some of the songs then, and in 20, 2017, um, and then recorded, um, you know, the just the main tracks of uh, vocals and guitars or vocals on ukulele mm-hmm. at a studio um, in San Rafael that a friend of mine owns, um, Sudananda. So initially, I just wanted to get the songs out and it was just going to be vocals and instrumentation, very basic instrumentation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, then as things progress, I ended up... <laughs> fully producing and hiring musicians and making arrangements and you know eventually learning how to mix and doing it all that's amazing i mean the fact that you did tackle all of that and so many artists are doing that these days Mm -hmm. because well first of all it gives you a lot more control Mm -hmm. of your project i know you've mentioned that to me you're a bit of a control freak when it comes to your music and your sound yeah a little bit and there's nothing wrong with that I, i think every artist that has a strong vision is a control freak in one way or another. And this isn't your first go around at this, right? You've done three other records prior to this one. Mm -hmm. So just to kind of rewind the clock a little bit, since we jumped right in with your current album, 
You're originally from Spain, from mm -hmm. Andalusia. Yes. Is that right? The, my hometown is Sevilla. Sevilla. Uh -huh. In the region of Andalusia. Uh -huh. And I grew up in outside Madrid in uh -huh. a town called Majadahonda. Ah, yeah. and you come from a musical family as well, is that right? I do, yeah. Yeah, your father, a guitar player? and My dad is a musician, musician, a guitarist. He started out as a guitarist and then also producer, produced his uh, albums and, um, you know, many, many other roles that he's played over the years, but mm -hmm. his, his, main, his main gig, his main thing is the guitar, his, mm -hmm. yeah. And your parents brought you to the U.S. at a really kind of pivotal age as a young teenager at 16, right? Yeah, we came, the four of us. Mm -hmm. I have a younger brother who was 12 at the time, and mm -hmm. I was 16. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we made the leap over the Atlantic and <laughs> into the Pacific. But you were already playing music at a young age, right? If I understand correctly, you were playing music early on in your life. Yeah. And that was that an influence of your family and being in a musical family? I think definitely, but it was a very personal choice for me. Mm -hmm. I felt at the age of seven, some friends started playing piano and taking piano classes. And my uncle, who was in a band with my dad, he's passed away now, but he, you know, in some ways he had a huge influence on me because he was a piano player and a keyboardist mm. and mm -hmm. a producer. And I'd go to his house and there are all these really cool, weird synths and instruments. I didn't understand what they were and computers and video games. And that, you know, when I went to his house, I played the piano and I didn't know how to play it. And then my friends told me they were doing this. And I was like, I'm going to take piano lessons. Mm -hmm. You know, and we didn't have a piano in the house. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But my parents said, okay, if you play, they had a keyboard. Yeah. You know, like one of those like very soft. The like waterfall, a synth, like a MIDI keyboard. A MIDI keyboard, like mm -hmm. the waterfall um, action ones. Mm -hmm. Um and they said, if you play for half an hour every day for a year, they got me piano lessons, but I'll, maybe we'll get you a piano. Ah. So I made it. Nice. Good incentivizing. It was very, yeah. Uh -huh. And uh, I loved it. I, I studied classical piano and solfege and harmony at mm -hmm. the conservatory. And that was amazing. I, I played uh, many hours a day. At one point, I was playing three hours every day. Yeah. I think that also influenced me in my discipline and passion for music and for practice. Yeah. Yeah. And it shows, I think, in your performances, in your confidence level. Thank I think you. that's so important to have that confidence going into a performance like, you know, no matter what, I'm, I'm talented, I'm a good musician, and no matter what happens, this is going to work out just fine. You know, being able to have that attitude, I think, is so important. I've seen you perform a few times now, but the last time mm. it struck me, because you got up in front of a room of about 70 people, it was a, a house concert that you invited me to, the So Far, so far Sounds So Far show. Sounds show, that, that was just you and a guitar. And it was bold. I thought it was bold. And it went over so well, you know, you could just get up in front of an audience and sing and it would go over well, quite frankly. But the fact that you were That's able great. to, you know, the fact that you were able to get up there, you know, and fully pull it off, accompany yourself with an electric guitar. And I was surprised to see you do it with an electric guitar. I thought for sure you would, you know, given the kind of sound that you're producing, you know, have a nylon string or a ukulele or something like that. But mm -hmm. it was cool that you did that and it showed a lot of confidence in yourself, you know, and in your own art. So you came to the U.S. at 16 years old. Um, was that a shock to your system? Was that like, oh my God, <laughs> were you excited about it? You think back on that time, like, I can't wait to get to the U.S. Or were you like, oh my God, what's what's this going to be like? No, I was so excited. Yeah. I wanted to leave my house every chance I got. I loved my, you know, I had a very happy childhood, but I was always wanting to travel and go to friends' houses and stay over. And so for me, it was an adventure. Mm -hmm. And for all of us, it was a huge adventure. Mm -hmm. But you, you went know, to we LA, left. you landed in Malibu, is that right? Yeah, we landed uh -huh. in Malibu. Uh -huh. And my dad had a record deal there, and that's why we had moved there. Uh -huh. And um, yeah, very different. Mahalaonda mm -hmm. to Malibu. Uh -huh. Very, very different. Yeah, so now you're going to high school in Malibu. That, that must have been pretty wild coming from Spain, right? Yeah, the system is different. You know, the culture is different. Mm -hmm. The priorities are different. The, mm -hmm. Everything, you mm -hmm. know, it's like entering a new a new universe. And how did so, that impact you as a musician, do you think, in terms of, you know, that experience of 
changing your whole world like that. And yeah, and well, the whole, you know, the whole LA vibe, right? I mean, we think of that as the entertainment headquarters of the world in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, at least I know many people I know do. Yeah. And in many ways it still is, even though we're living in a much more decentralized industry now. So mm-hmm. h- how did that affect you? Well, initially I was there as a 16 year old student. Mm-hmm. So for me, I had fulfilled all my school requirements, my academic requirements. Mm-hmm. I was mostly taking music classes. I was in choir and I was in in music class mm-hmm. and I was in art class and I was in drama. <laughs> it was like doing everything I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So for, in that way, it was really cool because we got to play at a lot of different places. With the choir, we went to Carnegie Hall. So for me, initially, it was really fun to open up into that world where there are so many other possibilities. Yeah, and then I kind of got into, I I went to school in Berkeley after being there for a couple of years in Malibu. Mm -hmm. And then when I came back, you know, I jumped into the circuit, the venue circuit in LA. And yeah, I would say, you know, at the time it was like what was there and what I, you know, so I didn't think this is different or this is a certain way. I always felt um, a sense of competition and I felt a little bit, kind of like a lone wolf, you know, Mm. because LA is so big. And of course I have musician friends I still connect with and I had a a certain community, but uh, there's so much happening in LA. It's it's fascinating. There's there's never a shortage of things that you could do or, you know. But But when you talk about the venue circuit, talk about that for a second, because what got you into the venue circuit? How did that happen? And what made you, you know, were you playing original songs at that time or were you doing covers? At what point did you start writing your own original music? Yeah, so I, I was doing both. And coming back from school, I had a little demo and then my dad helped me. Which school are you talking about now? When I went to Berkeley, okay, College so you, of Music. You were in Malibu, you went to high school, and from there you went directly to Berkeley College mm-hmm. of Music. And you were able to get in there. You had some kind of grant or something that you were able to get? It or? was a private grant. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. That's that's pretty awesome, right? It was amazing. Yeah. I'm really grateful. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. And what did you study at Berkeley? So I studied a compound of, of things. I studied professional music, which is um, basically you make your own major. So That's funny. You know, we have that in common. You d- really? Yeah, I did a uh, a multidisciplinary liberal arts major at San Francisco State, where I put together my own major. Cool. Yeah. 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 So it's, so you knew what you wanted as well. I, I, in <laughs> many kinda. ways, I did. I, I didn't know where I'd end up, you right. know, but right. I definitely had a sense of where I wanted to go. I think that's where I'm driving at with this, because I think you've always had a strong vision for yourself, it seems like to me. And education has played a big role in that for you, in terms of mm-hmm. how you've chosen your education and the experiences that you've put yourself through, right? Yeah, for sure. And I'm so grateful to all my teachers throughout my different incarnations as a student and, mm-hmm. a, and a musician. Um, Talk a little bit about this major that you put together at Berkeley and how you yeah. approached that. So I took as many different classes as I could so I could really understand what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So I took music synth, I took film scoring, I took different ensemble classes for performance. I took jazz and scatting, vocal classes african drumming brazilian drumming songwriting so i was also really drawn to music therapy even at that time but i didn't go into it because i wanted to keep my feelers out for everything else you know i look at that i mean i was just a kid i was i was 18 20 years old yeah so i think i was just looking for my way and met really incredible teachers vocal teachers harmony teachers it was and and also really great international community of musicians. Yeah, you know, so a lot of people that I'm still in touch with, and mm-hmm. that's great. Yeah, were, did you feel supported in that environment? Was that like a supportive learning environment? You felt like you were able to do a lot of self discovery through that process. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say I I don't know if it's my personality, but in a lot of new situations, I find myself that I'm I'm really trying to figure things out. Yeah. You know, and especially coming from Spain where a system is very specific, you know, you have the conservatory or you have music schools, things have changed since then. But this was a lot more open and many more possibilities and choices and therefore things that I didn't even know were available Mm -hmm. to me. So it was a learning experience in many, 
<laughs> different ways. Of course. Well, Berkeley is yeah. a big institution. It's been around it for a long time. Yeah. And I always ask people about their experiences at bigger institutions because I'm always curious and comparing that to what we've built here at Pyramind, um, which is a very small boutique learning experience mm-hmm. where we try to create a very safe container for yeah. people to express themselves and have the opportunity to fail in because you learn through your mistakes in many ways. And that's a process of development. And I'm sure you went through that in many ways as well. I mean, mm-hmm. education is that environment where you can hopefully fail, learn from your failure and grow rapidly, you know, without having to do that with too much pain, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) well, I don't know about the amount of pain, but I I can, I understand what you're talking about. And I think coming from a classical music background, Mm -hmm. which is very stern Mm -hmm. and very specific, and then going to Berklee College of Music, which is one of the most prestigious music schools in the world, I always had a sense of this is how things should be. So I felt a little contracted, to be honest. Mm, mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I studied with Rhiannon, with my teacher Rhiannon, who's a, an Im- improviser, mm-hmm. and she's done a lot of work with Bobby McFerrin. Um, vocal improviser? Vo- yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, that's when I, I was like, oh, wow, you can fail and you can make a fool out of yourself and then you get up and do it again. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That was really my moment in that learning experience. Ah, Before then, you see? I don't think I mm-hmm. had allowed myself to fully go there, mm-hmm. at least in front of my peers. Mm-hmm. And how did that change things for you as a musician? What shifted at that point? I think it just gave me a lot of validation to be more free, to trust myself that I had enough training and enough knowledge and you know, enough of a, like a, a musical DNA that I could trust that I was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, that spirit of playfulness and, you know, just like I said, being silly and trying new things with other people because mm-hmm. there's a lot of collaboration with different singers mm-hmm. and using movement, using my body more, mm-hmm. you know, as a singer. And now when I teach, I tell this to my students, like it's so important to use our whole body mm-hmm. because it is our it is our whole instrument that we're using. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it was really wonderful. because Especially just... as a singer, right? I mean, your mm-hmm. your whole resonant chamber. Uh, I've worked with vocal coaches that would tell me, sing from your thighs. Mm-hmm. Use your thighs to support the diaphragm, to bring, you know, to fully embody your sound. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like that. Mm. Sing from your thighs. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, Berkeley, what was the next component then on your journey coming out of Berkeley? I'm trying to get to your first record here, right? What year did you do your first uh, record in? You've done four full-length albums at this point, is that Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, so that was 2006, Mm -hmm. I want to say, 2005, 2006, 2007. Mm -hmm. That first album, my dad had a home studio and, you know, I had certain songs, so he was really supportive and helped me put some of the songs together. And then I worked with another friend who was a drummer, producer, and worked on some songs with him. And then I recorded a song on my own. So it was kind of like a, let's put this album together, however it wants to come out. It was my first record, so I was really excited. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't I didn't know. But did you work with other engineers on these first records, right? The first three records? Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. It seems to me like you've kind of been a sponge absorbing all of that all along, right? To get to a place where you could engineer and produce your most current record yourself. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. What was that like, producing the first record? I mean, what an an awesome opportunity, right? To have a dad with a cool home studio. Yeah, Uh yeah. We batted heads a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Who <laughs> you your dad? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But I think it was it was really wonderful. He's a great guitarist and uh-huh. you know, pulled in some great musicians. Abraham Laboriel ended up playing on a couple of songs. What? Yeah. What? Yeah. Are you the bass player? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's an idol of mine. That's incredible. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah he's, he's amazing. He's amazing. Uh-huh. So what, what an amazing opportunity to play with somebody that talented. That's incredible, right? Yeah. To have that in your sphere in your world. Yeah. yeah, I feel I feel very lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, my musical life, looking back. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but I I wouldn't consider that I really produced that record, even though, like I said, I've always been kind of a control freak with my music. You know, I'm sure mm-hmm. <laughs> that kind of came through. But I didn't feel like empowered enough that I could even produce a record. So mm-hmm. for me, it was just getting my songs out that I had written on the piano. Sure. 
Sure. You know, mm-hmm. and that I could then sell my CDs at my shows and be like, I have a record, you know, right, I made right. this, uh-huh. you know. But I did the graphic design. I think I've done the graphic design for, yeah, three of my albums. So it was like a lot of being involved in the production. Yeah. Well, it wasn't long after that that you immediately went into recording a second record. And I guess maybe four years or so. It looks like about 2010 when it came out. But that's a process. And so talk about that because this was a culmination of a fundraising process that you went through to mm-hmm. raise the money to record your second release. Yeah? Yeah. Tell us yeah. a little bit about that. Because I think a lot of people are always wondering, can I do that? You know, Can I really lean into my fans who love me and love what I do to raise enough money to front load the production of my record? Because you know, even with home studios being what they are and everybody cranking out tracks and thinking they can put out a good sounding record, it's still challenging. You know, getting something to sound unique and exciting and fun is, you know, of course those are not all mutually exclusive or necessarily one and the same, but you're trying to put out a good record and Mm -hmm. having some money and being able to go into studios to record things at a quality level Mm -hmm. makes a big difference, right? Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that process. What was it like to go out and put yourself out there and say, I want to raise a bunch of money and do this right? Well, that was at a time when crowdfunding platforms were not a thing. Mm-hmm. This was the first ever uh, crowdfunding platform. It was called Celaband, mm-hmm. and it's dissolved since, a German company. And it allowed for believers mm-hmm. or fans mm-hmm. to believe in your music and pledge a certain amount. So, you know, so a friend told me about this, and I was like, yeah. Well, let's try it out. And for me, I've always thrived in the process of baptism by fire. Like I just <laughs> throw myself into something. Right. Into the frying pan we go. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then let's cook it, it up. Out. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, that sounds amazing. Let's do it. Uh-huh. I didn't, you know, it wasn't like a very logical decision. I'm going to do this and these are the steps. So it was like, yeah, that sounds amazing. And so that took me. A little while to raise that money, but there are really amazing people that I didn't know that enjoyed my music and wanted to fund it and wanted to see the album through. And then, of course, fans and friends and family and, you know, all the things. Mm -hmm. And I was really proactive. And then towards the end, an angel investor came through and he pledged a a big amount and that got everybody really excited. Right, because I'm reading here, I have some notes that say you raised $50,000 to record this record. Mm -hmm. That's an impressive amount of money. I mean, these days people are making records on far less, right? Mm -hmm. So the fact that you raised that much money I think it's it's worth noting, and you say that you've got you had about nine hundred and three fans from all over the world who contributed mm-hmm. to that process. Yeah, it's a really great number. What did you use to really engage them to want to get them to uh, invest in you? Was there something, any particular lures that you kind of pulled on to make them feel like this was a good investment for them? I tried to be myself and to put out the songs that I had already released and offer those incentives, as well as demos that I was writing or artwork, because I'm also a visual artist. I'm not trained, but I was offering those incentives and, you know, engaging, engaging with the community and engaging. And I learned a lot, you know, I learned what trolls were. I learned what supportive fans, who supporting fans are right. and how valuable they are and how for the rest of eternity, I'll be grateful to those. And they're probably still your fans to this day, right? Those are some of your hardcore fans. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Some of them I've stayed in touch with. And uh-huh. so it's a really beautiful experience. But it was also really, really hard to raise all that money. And I was putting a lot of hours into this platform. And But this um, was a kind of a do or die platform, right? Either you raised the full amount. Exactly. Or yeah. that was it. The money had to go back, right? Exactly. So you put yourself through that process. That must have been a little nerve wracking. Yeah, huh? uh-huh. it was. Yeah. But I was younger. Yeah. I, you know, I was more arrogant. And I was like, I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess I did it. So. Uh-huh. Well, that yeah. enabled you to afford a more heavyweight producer to work with this time around. You mm-hmm. worked with uh, Grammy Award-winning producer uh, Malcolm Byrne, right? Mm-hmm. Who'd worked with uh, Bob Dylan, mm-hmm. Jeff Buckley, who you feel a kin spirit to, I think. There's mm-hmm. something there. And then Rachel Yamagata, Daniel Lenoir. Mm-hmm. Um, big Amy favorite. Harris. 
So what was that like to go from, you know, your first release into working with an experienced producer like that? Well, I took my time to pick the producer and I was looking around and there were other really incredible candidates, Mm -hmm. but I really liked Malcolm's sound and the projects that he had been involved in. Mm -hmm. So I was really excited. And again, I learned a lot in this process, you know, being clear and the more you do it, the more clear you get about what your vision is, right? Now, were you living uh, on the East Coast at that time? or were No, you... I went and lived there during the duration of the recording. You're right. So it's because so, you recorded that in New York, in upstate, upstate New York. Upstate New York, yeah. Uh, was that in his studio? Yeah. Ah, yeah. I yeah. see. Interesting. So, yeah. so you went to his studio, booked it out. How long did it take? Uh, we were there for, I think I was there for two weeks total. Okay. not so, yeah. uh, That's pretty good. You recorded the whole record in two weeks. Yeah. How many songs? Oh my God, I'm so bad. <laughs> you have to you have to look that up. That's okay. That's fine. Um, I think eleven songs. Was right. that well, this record? this album was called Tame the Night. For Tame anybody Night. who wants to look it up, check it out. It's called Tame the Night, and uh, you had some pretty awesome musicians on there too. Mm-hmm. Ethan Hubanks, uh, Dan Brantigan on trumpet. That's my friend Dan. Uh-huh. He's great. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. You had a violinist and arranger on there. And another Kinda. guitarist, Mark Axiak. Yeah, right? from all different parts of the world. Uh-huh. Um, so that was... How did you assemble them? Most of them through Malcolm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Dan had actually worked with Malcolm because they had worked on a Khaki King album yeah. together, uh-huh. or maybe a few. But Dan and I went to school together, so I asked him because I just love his horn playing. It's just so beautiful. Yeah. So that album is very dear to me. There's a lot of love in there. And, um, I can imagine. And also from kind of the expectation from, you know, 903 people who donated it. So I, I really felt a responsibility to make it really like the best that it could be at the time, you know, for me. So what, what was Malcolm's process? How did he engage with you on that when you called him up and said, hey, I want to do a record with you? And you're calling up this producer and... You know, you'd never really worked with a producer at that caliber before. This was Mm -hmm. your sophomore record. Mm -hmm. What was that like? How did he engage you in that process? Well, my people called his people. Oh, it's like that. (laughs) My people called his people. Okay. And it really was like that. Uh You know, my people, the Cella Band, A&R, Adam, Uh contacted his manager. And Uh Malcolm heard my music. And he was like, cool, yeah, I'd like to work with her. And... And then as far as... But be a little more specific in terms of like, did you send him demos? Did he listen to the demos? And then did he critique them and give you feedback? And, you know, in terms of the arrangement and how he He saw this? He didn't give me feedback Mm -hmm. right away. Mm -hmm. Um, It was more of, you know, he had listened to some of my last album and the demos. Yeah. And then we, yeah, at one point we did talk about, you know, this song. I, you know, I really wanted string arrangements for Eyes to See and Winter Song, I believe. There are two songs that I was very like, I, in fact, I had produced Eyes to See mm-hmm. in GarageBand. And uh, <laughs> I had a very clear vision of what that song was going to be. Uh-huh. By the way, I laugh, but I don't mean that. I'm not laughing in a negative way. I'm, I'm laughing because it's amazing what you can do with GarageBand. Right, mm-hmm. what you can do with these tools, and it's just a tool. It's yeah. just a tool, exactly. You know, hearkening back to what the Beatles could do with four tracks. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. the talent, the talent, the talent. Mm-hmm. It's always, you know, these are just the tools and the time. Uh-huh. And the, yeah, 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 and the training and the years of education. Mm-hmm. You know, that mm-hmm. really culminate in these experiences that birth these projects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you worked for two weeks. In that two weeks, did you also mix the record in in that time? He was mixing some of the songs as we went along. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and what was it recorded on? Pro Tools? Was it on I tape? I think it was on, on Pro Tools. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It was on Pro Tools. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. And for you, what came out of that experience? How did that change your career? Well, that experience was, first of all, like you said, working with a heavyweight and very talented a producer as Malcolm meant a lot to me. And I also learned to trust myself more, uh-huh. you know, to not give away like, oh, you know, feel like making myself small. I feel like in that process, there were some moments there of, you know, I could have stood up for myself and I could have been more sure of myself, which is part of my own personal growth. And I also learned a lot about how 
to put a song together and mm, how to mm-hmm. create um, soundscapes and what it takes, the instrumentation, the arrangement, you know, because we all think in, in different ways as producers and as arrangers. And it's just really cool to jump into his world and learn how he does things. Yeah. Yeah. It was wintertime, very cold in upstate New York. So um, were a lot of the musicians here credited, were they local to that area? Or they come from New York? Or how did that all come together? So Ethan was living in New York City. Mm-hmm. And then Malcolm played bass mm-hmm. and guitar in a few of the songs. Mm-hmm. And Dan was in New York as well. Ethan came to track drums. Dan was just sending us uh, tracks via, you know, whatever we transfer. Dan was the trumpet player. He, then, he'd get uh, a mix and he would record the trumpet part and then send it over to you guys. Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then Kylene, the string player, uh, he would record these beautiful arrangements in uh, Colorado. And he would like, yeah, it was just like him and his uh, uh, viola and just create this incredible soundscapes of like, you know, full <laughs> orchestra of, of strings. Um so you'd send them from Colorado. And Mark Axiak, I believe he's in Norway mm. from all over the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you were in New York, but you were getting tracks fed at you from all over the place. Mm-hmm. And who organized all that? Malcolm. Malcolm organized all yeah. that. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So that was all part of your budget. And so there you are. You've got your second record. And then you started doing some touring around that. Yeah? Yeah. What was that like? It was... Exciting. It was fun. It was treacherous at times. Did you tour was, a solo or did you have a band that you were touring? I toured solo. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. I was uh, touring a little bit in California and in, in Europe, a few mm-hmm. European countries. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, it's just exciting to p- present your music to new venues, new audiences and different countries. And So at what point did you start to think of, you know kind of this genre or style that you've come up with and you know you refer to your music as dream folk. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. What is what does dream folk mean to you? So I'm thinking of folk in the same way that Bjork talks about folk yeah. music uh-huh. where she says folk music is music of the people. Um, so it's not the traditional, you know, American folk that we think about when we think about folk. But really the openness is like world music, you know? Because folk music is very different in the south of the States to folk music in, you know, Poland. Well, that's kind (laughs) of why I I kind of interrupted you there and I wanted to bring this up because I'm curious to, you know, understand a little bit about how people reacted to your music in different places, Um, right? Because there's different responses to that. So for me, it's interesting to think about this concept of what is dream folk and then how do people respond to that based on their cultural connections, knowing that, you know, that's obviously a big part of what folk music is about. Mm -hmm. I think about my music as like an encompassing all the music that I ever want to make, (laughs) (laughs) Uh which is kind of a weird thing, you know, a weird way of putting it. But I'm influenced by, you know, many different styles that perhaps don't even show in my music. Yeah, That's why I kind of opened up the term, you know, the folk part of it. And I love learning about new cultures, meeting people from different cultures, learning, Mm -hmm. trying to learn new languages. Uh, when I was in France, the audiences were so receptive and appreciative of the arts. And mm-hmm. to me, it was like, oh, this is, I really felt that French pride for the arts and, mm-hmm. and for culture. I'm not surprised at all that uh, the French would respond so positively to your music because this they have, uh, I think, an affinity for your sound, your culturally, the, mm. the, the sound that you make, not just as a singer, but the way you arrange your music and, mm. and also the acoustic guitar accompaniments. I think I have a lot of French background myself and I've been to France and hung out with a lot of my French friends who just love that style, Mm. you know? So it's interesting for me to hear you say that, but it's not surprising at all. Yeah. So it's a journey, you Uh know, that's, that's really how I feel about it. Um, Uh And then the term dream, you know, out of the dream folk, it's basically because a lot of people tell me that my music is very dreamy, yeah. you know, and uh-huh. what I, <laughs> a lot of the things that I, 
that I say about myself is because they're reflections back to me that mm -hmm. ring true, of course. But what I've always wanted to do, and I don't know that I've achieved it yet, I've always aimed for it, is to create these soundscapes where people can really like really emerge into and lose themselves into. And so that's the dreamy part. And I think that also transfers over to my sound healing work. And that's why I love that so much um, is the kind of the creation of a world of sound that doesn't have to necessarily mean anything, but that you're directly transported to a feeling mm, without mm -hmm. necessarily the mean, the need for meaning or words. Yeah, yeah. And that in a way, I mean, that must be why, I'm sure there's many reasons why, but for me that seems to resonate why you would be attracted to sound healing as a, a modality as well, because that's something you do too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I talk about that. How does that connect to the more pop dream folk stuff you're doing? And then on the other side, you've got a whole other component to what you're doing in the sound healing space. And you got yet more education for that too, right? Didn't mm -hmm. you go to the IICS, isn't that right? CIIS. CIIS, thank you. I always get that one wrong. It's my dyslexia there. <laughs> <laughs> So That's yeah, okay. CIIS, huh? Yeah. CIIS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the California Institute of Integral Studies, which is very close to Paramount Studios. It is, not yeah. far from where we are right now. That's mm -hmm. right, in the mission. So yeah, so I studied multidisciplinary studies there because um, mm -hmm. I, I wanted to finish my bachelor degree that I didn't finish at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And there was a really great program for sound healing mm -hmm. uh, led by Sylvia Nakash. And I took a semester of that and, you know, learned a lot and also just kind of validated my suspicion that <laughs> music is healing <laughs> oh, yeah. uh -huh. in so many different ways, uh -huh. Uh -huh. you know, um, metal music can be healing, you know, it's like, it all depends on what context it's in. Yeah. So. Well, if you've ever studied cymatics at all, it's fascinating to see the effect of sound on water crystals, mm -hmm. and that alone should tell you something right there. Mm -hmm. You know, just the, how the vibrations change the shape of, of things. Yeah, so sound, I mean, it's this uh, natural progression of things, and my role as a healer, I suppose, and that's, again, not something that I've ever thought of myself as. Mm -hmm. This has been more of the outward reflection. Oh, your music is very healing. Mm -hmm. You are a healer, you know, and I shy away from that because, you know, there's so much kind of frufruness that goes along with the word healer, mm. especially in the Bay Area. But at the same <laughs> yeah. time, uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> but at the same time, music is healing and music is medicine. And it's really an honor to just be a facilitator in that. Yeah. Well, w so what is it that ultimately brought you here to the Bay Area? It was the land. It was the sense of community. Yeah. And the cliffs and the ocean. Well, the, I mean, there's cliffs, there's oceans down in Southern California too. So what's as, the difference? Well, tell us. The same. What, yeah, what, why? What's the difference? You know, I think it's hard to explain, but sometimes you'll go to a place and you know that you're home. Uh, and that's uh -huh. when I felt the, the first few times I came up uh -huh. to mostly marine and the redwoods and the water there and... Mm -hmm. I really felt a sense of home and, I don't know, very magical land here is really potent. Oh, yeah. I feel it, too. You feel it, too? Of course. Well, I've been, I'm a little biased being a Bay Area native and, you know, right. born and raised here in San Francisco, um, but I choose to make my home in Marin now. Mm -hmm. I uh, still obviously work here in the city where we are right now, the studio, but, um, yeah, there's something special, very mm -hmm. special about that land and the trees and that whole environment up there that's very inspiring musically too, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And then the community of people who are, I think you said this earlier, so supportive, right? It's very a, supportive. It's a different vibe than in LA. So very different, you know, not to say there's not, you know, wonderful people everywhere. And of course. Assholes of course. everywhere, but. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, there's a, I think there's a very visible value of community and what it means to support one another and be kind to one another here that perhaps is not the same in, in LA. So we got through to album number three? Yes. So how did that happen? <laughs> what, what got us there? 
Album what number- got us to album number three? We yeah. were talking about moving to the Bay Area. Right. And that's where I wrote and recorded album number three. Mm-hmm. And I would say it's, you know, hugely influenced by the landscapes and the atmosphere mm-hmm. of this land. Mm-hmm. Well, album number three, I mean, album number four, which obviously we're going to get to in just a moment here, which has the elements of light. What were the elements of album number three? Talk about that. So album number three is called Vessel, uh-huh. and it's all about water. And I always imagine this journey through water on a vessel. Mm-hmm. And I imagine you know, myself going in, in this vessel. And uh, later on, I learned that in a lot of, I think it's in Russia, there's this, this sense that going, traveling through water is like going to the underworld because you go into this emotional landscape and this this journey that you don't you don't know what you're going to find you know and it's still very familiar in some ways because you're traveling your own emotions and your own inner world mm-hmm. so that album was more introspective and uh, yeah deeper in in some ways very watery um, well, water embodies emotion, right? And that's the... Right. Uh-huh. Does that have anything to do with... What, what sign are you anyway? <laughs> I'm a double Leo with oh. four planets in Leo, so I'm... <laughs> oh, boy, you're, I'm a... <laughs> a, you're a fiery one. <laughs> oh, now <laughs> that totally makes sense. Now you understand. Uh, I yeah. needed the water. Yes. I need it. And I love the water, uh-huh. as you know. Uh-huh. I love jumping in the ocean here. And uh-huh. this makes me so happy. So actually... I had some of my first moments, you know, of baptism in the water, mm-hmm. in the Bay Area freezing waters here around that time, mm. you know, that I was writing that album. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many other things. Also a breakup that prompted the, I've got to make this happen. Mm. You know, Nothing like a happen. breakup to spur on some, <laughs> some, some inspiration to write some music, huh? Some determination. Uh-huh. And some of the songs were written, but I think it was more of that energetic momentum of like, I'm going to do this for myself. I'm going to get this into the world. And I something that I really need to express and I need to people to see me for this, for that, you mm-hmm. know, that this thing I'm going through is so important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and of course, we all go through the same things. And, mm-hmm. you know, then we move on. But that's our journey, isn't it? That's, that's our journey, that's, the, the hero's journey. Uh-huh. And that's what I talked a lot about at the beginning was the, the hero's journey of that album. Uh-huh. Going deep into the underworld. And there's a song there called I Dream Dark. It's about that. It's about going into the underworld. and Yeah, what did you find in the underworld? When you went well, trust. Uh-huh. I feel like every time I've gone into the underworld, I find a deeper trust in myself and in life. Mm. And that there's a lot of distractions that take us away from mm-hmm. that truth that it's all okay in the end, and we better enjoy the journey. <laughs> you know, it's all we've got at the end of the day, you know, it is the journey. And so this journey then brought you to recording a fourth album, and that's the one we uh, opened up with, Black Seed. We're going to play another song and maybe even get a chance to watch a bit of a video, talk about the production around this in particular, because mm-hmm. this is the first album that you've done that you actually produced and engineered yourself. Right, uh-huh. yeah. So for Vessel, I wanna mention Julie because she was an instrumental part of making that album. Mm, okay. And um, I had done a lot of the work myself mm-hmm. and I just didn't know how to end this album. And oh, wow, okay. So I, through some friends, um, my friend Rachel in New York and, and Rhiannon actually, I connected with Julie Wolf, who was working at Fantasy Studios at the time. And Fantasy Studios here in Berkeley. In, in yeah, in, in Berkeley, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that had closed down. Unfortunately, closed down. So much history there, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that was a great experience because I knew I wanted to co-produce that album because I had done so much work already. So I felt that like I need to do this. And Julie was great in teaming up with me and bringing her wonderful ear and sensitive piano playing and great ideas, but also being very, you know, very much like a friend. I get. <laughs> I felt like I was I was in power to a certain extent. So that was a great experience. But for this album, for Luth, I really wanted to do it myself because I it was almost like 
proving myself that I could do it. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the, you know, being a control freak part that you talk about. Uh, (laughs) You talked about it first. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I did. And then you reminded me, which is great. (laughs) That's right. Look, again, I'm going to reiterate, every great artist I've ever met is a control freak. Yeah, you have to. You have to be. <laughs> because you have to be determined and dog-headed enough and and have enough willpower to see through, you know, these processes that can be long and drawn out and sometimes painful, mm-hmm. uh, emotional for sure. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, if you're not somewhat of a control freak, then it doesn't express you. Mm-hmm. And I think your music is very much an expression of you. Thank there, you. There's no doubt about that in my mind, you know, mm-hmm. lyrically and, and sonically, and it shows. But what gave you the, you know, the training? How did you manage to, you know, pull that off? You know, what did you go through to say, I have the confidence now not only to write, sing, perform my record, but I'm going to produce it and I'm going to engineer it too? Well, the technical part of it, I had been working with Logic for a few years now because I wrote most of Vessel on Logic. Mm -hmm. Then we transferred it to Pro Tools (laughs) Mm -hmm. because I work with another producer in Woodacre. Mm -hmm. And we brought it back to Logic and then we brought it back to Pro Tools (laughs) for for Fantasy Studio. So (laughs) with this record, with this newest one, I was like, okay, (laughs) no matter what, I'm sticking with Logic Uh and I'm not doing anything else. So, you know, in preparation for doing the album, I produced three cover songs just to get comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. And I was asking my friend, uh, Nigel Wolovic, who's a wonderful engineer at Prairie Sound Studios, to give me some feedback. Mm -hmm. So he would say, you know- Prairie Sound Studios, also a great studio here in Northern California. great studio Yeah, Uh yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he would say, you know, look at the EQ of your vocals and mm-hmm. make sure that the low end frequencies are turned down or, you know, there's things that I would never have known, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that kind of put me in a, the path of, okay, I can look this up. I can do some research. But then I also, you know, starting with, with this album, I asked another friend, Eric Glauser, who works at Hyde Street Studios, another great um, <laughs> recording studio here in the Bay Area, to come and teach me. So he would come, and he would be very patient, and he would teach me. I mean, I knew how to record for the most part. Mm-hmm. I was, I, we, we weren't recording anything like too complicated. I wasn't tracking drums myself or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It was mostly vocals, guitar, ukulele, keys, mm-hmm. uh, programming doing you know beat production but he was great at teaching me how to how to mix and how to gain self-confidence you know Mm -hmm. and wonderful human and and teacher Mm -hmm. eric is and by the end of it he's like you need to just do it yourself like you need to stop (laughs) asking me because you know what you want you know how to do it now so yeah a lot of that process and then um was this gear that you acquired and built a space for yourself and your own home? Yeah, this uh-huh. is all gear that, you know, uh-huh. with the pandemic, it was uh-huh. the perfect time to be like, I need to invest right. in certain yeah. things. Yeah. And It's no wonder that uh, there's so much back ordering going on on equipment during that period. And still to this day, is getting really? equipment. Yeah, well, there's other reasons for that now. But yeah, yeah, I would get on the horn with our dealers over at Sweetwater and they're like, yeah, get in line. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. How many people were buying gear because they were like, "Screw it! If I'm home, I'm gonna I I'm better gonna, make a record. Better make a record, you know. And I could <laughs> yeah. do it myself. And look at you, you know, you did it. So yeah, yeah. And I remember the first three months of 2020, or the first few months, I was like, "Great, mm-hmm. we're in lockdown. This is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. I get to be a hermit, uh-huh. and I have the perfect excuse." Uh huh. So that was great. And then it wasn't so great after that, but it gave me a lot of this kind of like, you can do this. Yeah. You can uh-huh. take the time. Take the time. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a blessing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So, and Luce was born. 
right? You were able to uh, make a beautiful record. I mean, I've listened to it several times and I I really, it just puts me in a great headspace when I listen to your music. Mm. Yeah, I listen to so much different music, you know, electronic music, hip hop music, dance music, rock music, pop music, jazz music. And so this, it's dream folk. There should be a genre out there for this, you know? There is now. <laughs> there is now. And so you put out 10 songs. That's pretty awesome. We listened to one of them, Black Seed. Let's play a little bit of another song just to give our listeners a taste of what you're doing. And I want to play it actually here because you've got a video mm-hmm. that you did. Beautiful video, Angel of Mine. Let's show a little bit of this video and, and talk a little bit about where'd you shoot this thing here? <laughs> so lovely. Yeah, so I got to keep something from that experience, uh-huh. both in real life and in the video. <laughs> uh-huh. It was really nice to have you be able to narrate that, actually, as we watched it, because it gave me a whole different interpretation of what I saw in the video. And of course, I know those beaches so well, you know, mm-hmm. and, and to see that and hear that in that environment. I'm curious to know what your interpretation is. Mm. I definitely felt like she was a spirit being of some sort. So to hear you say that, you know, my angel makes sense, of course, and that there was a some guidance from above coming to help you find your way, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. realize your path. Mm-hmm. And so I think I wasn't too far off base there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's very lovely. You've got it. So this album is now out on vinyl. It is. That's pretty darn cool. Oh, it's so cool. Yeah. What inspired you to do that? Because that's not cheap or easy, but, you know, it's certainly something that I guess fans appreciate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. We're having the vinyl release concert next week. Oh, exciting. That you're invited to. Oh, wonderful. you can make it. Oh, I'd love to. When is it? it, It's next Sunday. Okay. Yeah. So... Every musician wants their music on vinyl uh-huh. that I know anyway. Uh-huh. Just as a completion to the album, you know. Mm, so mm-hmm. it's like everything is digital now. And so I had dreamed about that. I had dreamed about having the album on vinyl, not on CD, because I still have CDs from my last records. People don't listen to CDs anymore. Unfortunately, they stream. And you say unfortunately. Is that well? Un- unfortunately, because well, first of all, every physical way of experiencing music is valid, right? It's unfortunate because I have a lot of CDs and I've given out a lot of CDs. Uh-huh. I've gotten rid of a lot of CDs that I loved listening to. Yeah, because they're obsolete now. Your own musical collection of CDs. My own musical collection. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say they're obsolete well they're still listen to you can still listen to them but i don't own a cd player anymore i don't have a cd player in the car and most Uh people don't um that's interesting i do you do yeah 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 Yeah. so sometimes i'll still listen to cds that's great mostly though you're right i'm streaming i'm everybody you're streaming on spotify i'll give you one of my cds okay (laughs) (laughs) but yeah people stream now Uh right that's kind of the main thing and the sad part is that you know, streaming doesn't pay any money. So we're basically making records that cost a lot of money and then not getting anything in return. Mm -hmm. And that is a job. You know, Mm -hmm. I was working full-time for two years on this album. Uh And that's a whole another conversation. Uh But that's why it's sad. You know, the Uh state of the arts and music in the world today and how much value there is to music and how much people want and love and need music. Yeah. But, you know, the ratio of that to like how it's compensated with our currency, with which is money, makes no sense. I mean, that's the quandary now. I mean, making music has become easier than it ever has been in terms of just the process. And I'm not saying that in regard to your ability to produce and record your own record, which I think is awesome. And obviously to record a good record which is what you've done here, takes a lot of skill and time and talent. Mm. But the fact is, you know, there's 60,000 songs a day being uploaded to Spotify. Well, that's the number. Yeah. 60,000 songs a day. Not only is it challenging to get enough plays to make money from, but just to get noticed. You Mm -hmm. know, there's a lot of great music that just doesn't get the time of day um, because there's just so much music and there's so many people wanting to express themselves and get out there with their music. And it makes it just that much more challenging because, you know, there's just so much out there. And I've even heard and read about statistics where the music that's still making the most money are, are the legacy artists. 
The artists, you know, there's a reason why they come around and tour still, because there's so much demand mm -hmm. for music that has imprinted itself into people's minds, mm -hmm. because it becomes a part of your identity mm -hmm. when you're growing up. For people who grew up like me, listening to bands like Led Zeppelin and The Stones and you know, those were the days of our lives, you know, yeah. and, and that stays with you forever. And there's always going to be demand for that. And those catalogs are worth a lot of money. Yeah. And you talk about publishers paying a lot of money for catalogs. There's a reason for it. And they know that. And so the challenge now for you is how do you get yourself up above that noise floor? What do you do? Because you, you're producing music that is definitely nuanced. Mm -hmm. It's very niched right? And yet it's very evocative and wonderful to listen to. What are your plans to get yourself out there in a way that, you know, gets you out to a bigger audience? Well, thank you for saying those things. Yeah, for sure. And I have two answers. One of them is I don't know. Because uh -huh, uh -huh. I honestly don't know. Uh -huh. I don't understand the world trends. I don't understand the world is changing so much anyway. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's really hard to put my finger on like, how does this all work? Even if I knew, which I'm not that kind of a person. I'm not someone who understands trends and understand what, you're not, like you're not, Are you not on TikTok? No, I'm not. <laughs> um, but I'm not a statistics kind of a person, okay? Uh -huh. I'll let someone else do that. I have other fortes. And the other answer is um, just keep going with what I know what to do, mm -hmm. you know? So talking mm -hmm. to you here mm -hmm. right now, mm -hmm. playing shows in the Bay Area, planning a tour in, you know, down the coast of California, mm -hmm. planning another tour in, in Europe, having a rapport with the people who are doing the bookings and other musicians and doing collaborations with other musicians and finding alternative spaces to play music at and keep practicing and keep learning new skills mm -hmm. and be supportive and have artist collectives, which I'm part of too right now, Two female artist collectives, actually, that are so wonderful because we really need that community support. Yeah, yeah. Doing that silent disco that I did for the release of, of the record. You know, mm -hmm. just for me, it's about staying creative. And it's not in my ego or in my ambition. I would love to win a Grammy and I would love to travel the world with my music and for people to recognize me and all the things. But I can't count on that. What I can count on, and you know, I see my dad has done, and I see so many other musicians are doing and have done, is to continue alive in music that is sustainable and that is satisfying. And you're working, you're a working musician, and mm -hmm. you're doing your best to, again, keep learning, keep your practice going, keep creating something that's new and fresh and interesting, and just make the world a better place through music, as cliche as that sounds. But we look at history through, you know, we can look at history through the lens of war and, you know, the, <laughs> all those events, but we can also look at history through the lenses of culture and, and art and music. And that's what I'm interested in. And even if it's in a very, very small way, I just want to do my part. And of course. That's, mm -hmm. that's what fills my heart. Mm -hmm. when, when someone says, I was playing my music to my dad as he was dying. That is the biggest compliment that I can receive. Mm -hmm. And that's what keeps me going. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what the answer is to mm -hmm. get over the noise because mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. I can't really fight with that. It's like fighting against the ocean. Mm -hmm. But I know that I can learn how to swim and learn how to learn the currents and be humble and then be brave and then, you know, do the things that I need to do mm -hmm. and... Hopefully grow a community of like-minded people who are doing the same thing mm, and have a mm -hmm. good time doing it Sure, and sure. have it be sustainable so yeah. we can keep doing it because yeah. there's no, you know. Well, you know, and, and I think this goes back to the fact, you know, you said you're not making a lot of money on streaming and Spotify and we know how challenging that is because you have to hit these huge numbers you know, be in the millions of streams or hundreds of thousands at least of listeners and streams to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And yet today more than ever, music is so niched. 
You know, there's so many different right. nuanced niches of music and every niche has its fans. Exactly. And making a personal connection with those fans is so important. And I see you do that. I see you when you perform doing that. And, you know, the fact that you had close to a thousand fans, you know, giving you money to produce your second album speaks hugely to that. And who those super fans are, those are the fans that make all the difference. Mm-hmm. And focusing on those fans, I think exactly. is going to make the big difference in your career. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, this may not be right out the gate, a Grammy winning release, you know, but it's a beautiful release. And it's something that speaks hugely you. to your talents and how you move people emotionally mm-hmm. through your music. That's why I, I bring this up because it's so easy to get overwhelmed with the amount of noise that's out there. And for anybody listening, you know, to realize that it's okay to not have hundreds of thousands of listeners or, you know, millions of follows or whatever. If you're staying true to your art and you have fans that believe in you, Mm -hmm. ultimately that's what's going to carry you and focusing in on that is going to make a big difference. And I know it's going to make a big difference for you um, because you do have a lot of fans here in the Bay Area. You got Mm -hmm. a lot of people who love what you're doing and, and want to support you. And, you know, I'm certainly one of them. Thank you, Greg. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that definitely. means the world to me. Yeah, for oh. sure. Um, so what I want to do now is I do want to play one last song of yours here. because And we were, we were going over this together earlier. It's like, well, what song should we play? You know, mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, you choose. I'm like, no, 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 this is your interview. <laughs> you need to choose. And so I thought, you know, there, there's a lot of great songs on here. But one of my favorites is Angel of Mine. Let's listen to Angel of Mine a little bit. Okay. Um, talk a little bit about this song, too. I like the way you were kind of commenting on the video. Do, do a little bit of that for us here, okay? Okay, yeah. All right, thank you. Angel of mine, will you fly by my side? Will you stay? My favorite uh, meter. So, what's the inspiration behind this one here? Inspiration was me on, you know, fooling around with the guitar. Realizing it was, was kind of um, trying time, and realizing that I needed a like a prayer song to my angel. So I started writing it. And it came really fast. Mm. Yeah, we didn't talk about you know that at all in terms of how long it takes you to come up with these ideas and these songs. Yeah. So a lot of the best ones are downloads that happen very fast and mm-hmm. then maybe I, I write the last verse later on or something mm-hmm. like that or the, arrange it slightly different mm-hmm. um, but this one came came through really fast um, almost the whole song in, in that night and um, it's really just asking for guidance you know feeling really alone and feeling like I, I had been left behind and I had failed in different things that I had tried to do. One of them being a relationship. Another one being like finding my my place, my place in the world, and where I should live. And so I wrote I wrote this song to my angel. Nice. Has such a nice lilt to it between being in six eight and uh, the arrangement you've got here. Talk a little bit about the arrangement. What, what, are, what are you doing here? The arrangement was going to be, again, guitars and vocals. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely hear more than that in the background. But there's just, more, yeah. 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 So um, Eric had the idea of bringing in a mandolin, mm-hmm. which he had. And then um, some reverse guitars. There's some reverse guitars in the chorus there. Um, and I wanted some strings. 
跳。And this incredible cellist named Helen Newby played strings on it and made it.、Uh, every time those strings come along,、mm-hmm. it's like your heart opens up. Yeah.、Uh-huh. And then you know we added some brushes and.、Uh-huh. Um, There's a ukulele line there, in there as well.、Mm-hmm. Um, some backing vocals. Beautiful, lovely,、mm-hmm. lovely, lovely. Thank you.、Um, thank you so much, Lucia Malikoy, for being here today. It's been a pleasure talking about your music and your career. If you want to find out more about Lucia, you can go to her website www.lilikoymusic.com. She's also on Bandcamp. You can look her up, lucia.bandcamp.com. Also on Spotify and all major outlets.、Mm-hmm. And you should definitely check out the vinyl that she's put out with this beautiful release. And I'm sure you can find that on your website too, right? Everything, yes. It's all there. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks again, Lucia. This has been fun. Thank you so much, Greg. Such a pleasure. Remember, if you have a guest suggestion or want to contact me for any reason, we have a contact form on the Mentor My Mix website. That's mentormymix.com. Or feel free to email me at greg at mentormymix.com. Special thanks to Quinn Grodzins for the theme music and audio editing, Josh Valdez and Sean McKenna for audio and video production, and Clarice Joubert for video editing and post production.